And I left there in May of 70 to go to Vietnam. Yeah, he hit me right in here uh, in my thigh area and he just tore me all the way down. He just... I mean, that's when I went into Special Forces. I mean, well, I start... You can't just go in and say, I want to be Special Forces, right? Well, I did. <laughs> I, I, I did. There was a recruiting poster up there for York City Police. Mm. And I said, wow, I think I'm going to join that. I was in a ditch beside the runway. And I laid there for a while, and I thought, I'm, I'm going to be crippled for the rest of my life now. There was actually children involved with this. There was children. I mean, yeah. I mean, some of the, some of the. Cambodia was the worst. Really. Give me a minute. Yeah. We were in Cambodia. Sitting here with Mike Albert, he was a U.S. Army Green Beret with the 20th Special Forces Group, a York City police officer, a private detective, and he worked in anti-human trafficking in the Philippines for some time. He dedicated his entire life to serving his country and his community, even after retiring when he then became a mayor. So, Mike, thanks for talking to me. Your family moved to, to Maryland, born in Carlisle, moved to Maryland and decided at that point that you wanted to go into the Navy. Mm -hmm. So you actually left high school to go into the Navy. And how long were you in the Navy? Just a year. Okay. I went in between my junior and senior year. Okay. Because it was a reserve. And I spent that year in my senior year uh, on a destroyer escort that was stationed in um, D.C. So you decide then uh, to get out of the Navy, you want to go in, into the actual Army, and this is it's 1970, so... Well, that would have been... Night, that, at that time, it was 1967, yeah. Oh, 67. You yeah. went, okay, wow. I went, on, went in what you call airborne unassigned, so I was guaranteed to go to jump school at any time, but then I would go as the needs of the Army. So at the time, I was talking to the recruiter I had told him, I said, I have this love for tanks. I idolized General Patton, you know. Yeah. I had my uncles, I had uncles that served with him, and I mean, just, he was the guy. I said, so I think I'd like to try out tanks. And of course, the recruiter leans across the desk. He said, son, you ever see a tank fall out of an airplane? <laughs> no. Even in the movies? No. He said, you're right. <laughs> he said, if you go armor, you're not going airborne. Oh. Okay. So I said, well, whatever. And then so anyway, they, they put me in the, in the military police. So okay. they kind of like, okay, well, maybe this is where I'm heading. Because long time ago when I was very little boy, uh, we went to one of these little highway restaurants. I don't know what you would call them. And I was with my mother, my dad. And I was in there and it was up northern Pennsylvania. And these two giant troopers came in, and I, I was in awe of them. And apparently at one time I said, you know, I want to be like them, you know. And I uh, said, yeah, okay. So anyway, it kind of just stuck in my mind. I think maybe when I grow up I'll be a, be a cop. But that well, kind of, you know. That was already in your head. I yeah, mean. That, I mean, I was a little kid, but it wasn't, you know, it was just a little kid talking because right. they looked so cool. Yeah. They were so big, and I wanted to be big like that. And it's like, you know, these were like probably coal miner Pollocks up there in right. northern yeah. Pennsylvania yeah. or something. But you would, so you would decide to go in as airborne originally. Yeah, uh, yeah, I wanted to to go in, and um, I went in, and I got I got uh, I got injured, and they wanted to put me in um, uh, 
forget what the name of that was, recycle type thing. It was a, it was a company. And I decided, you know, I'm not going to be here and do details and heal up. I said, can you, can I just go to another unit? They said, yeah, we can send you. So I ended up in Korea. Oh, okay. So wait a minute. What, so you went in as airborne, but you ended up going into MP. Yeah, well, I was. That would have been my MOS. Airborne would have been. Okay. In addition to that, would have been in. An, I would have been in a airborne military police company, probably in the 82nd Airborne Division. And then I went to military police school and then jump school. And then I, I was supposed to be in the 82nd, and then I went over to Korea because I didn't finish. Well, after Korea, I, I was sent to Fort Monroe, Virginia. And uh, that was kind of like a nice duty station, basically a peninsula, you know. And uh, it was actually, most of the stuff there was handled by the FBI since it was a, a government, a federal government uh, organization. Um, so I was there for a year. Uh, see, I got there in December of 68, and I left there in May of 70 to go to Vietnam, so I was there that whole time. Okay, so you spent a year in Vietnam as an MP. Dog handler. Oh, dog handler, that's yeah, right. Yeah. I've been hearing a lot of stories lately about canines in Vietnam. I mean, I heard they were so vicious. I don't know if this is true or not. They're so vicious, they actually had to put them all down before they came back, was that? Yeah, um, and that was the sad part because when we were over there and they were active, they were essentially just like police dogs here, you know, they were, they were active duty, you know, army entities, so to speak. Uh, they had a lot of pri privileges in the way. I've even heard stories, I've never witnessed it myself, uh, where they have actually been in contact with the enemy. They were wounded, GIs were wounded, not very seriously, but they would pull the GIs, GIs off and put the dogs on there and have them sent out. Now, again, like I say, I'm, wow. I hadn't vetted it, but that was a story going around. Yeah. And uh, But yeah, they were vicious. And uh, backing up to Korea is when I went to dog school. Uh, when I first got there, uh, they sent me down to a unit in place called, used to be called Taejon. It's now called something similar to that, but it's not the same place. And they had a nuclear uh, storage area down there built into the mountains. They were all just bunkers inside the mountains. And uh, they sent me down there and they, had, they said, look, we, we have openings for dog handlers. We need dog handlers. Would you be willing to go? I said, yeah. I said, I don't want to sit in a tower for eight hours a day when I can out walk the dog. So they sent me to dog school. So when I'm in dog school, now these, these are vicious dogs. These are dogs that are trained, given to a handler. Let's say you get the dog. I come along, you're going back to the States. I get your dog. He has to be retrained over again because he doesn't know me. Yeah, yeah. So I was in school. I had this dog and he wasn't eating. Something wrong with him, I don't know. So it's winter time, and I mean, Korea, when it gets winter, it's like it was outside the last couple of days, maybe times three or four. So I had this big parka on, I had all kinds of heavy clothing on, and I had my hands stuffed in, in my pockets, and I'm walking with my head down. Now the dogs are in a house that are suspended on a pole, so that they were chained on the pole, they could jump out the house, run around, get exercise, and go back in the house. I wasn't paying attention. And the next thing I saw was canine teeth coming up here like this at me. And I backed off and I smacked him on the, on the uh, muzzle. He went down and as soon as he hit the ground, he went straight into my groin. Ooh. 
if his chain had been an inch longer, my voice would probably be about a couple <laughs> octaves higher right, right. Now. Uh, Yeah, he hit me right in here uh, in my thigh area, and he just tore me all the way down. He just went like this. Now, I had heavy clothing on, which was what saved my leg. Were they the Belgians? They were German Shepherds. Oh, they were straight Shepherds. Yeah, now I don't, I'm not remembering what this one was. There was, there was a mixture of dogs, but mm -hmm. most of them were Shepherds. Long story short, they took me to the hospital, and I, I remember the doctor coming in, taking a look at me. He said, he said, I, I, there's nothing there to sew together. He said, you're like mincemeat down there. He said, I'm going to have to just patch you up and let it heal. That's all we can do. So I was, I was laid off for probably a good month before I could go back and really do anything. Did you go but back I, to the dogs? I finished school. Yeah, I had a dog. I have a picture of him in there with me. Yeah. I'll show it to you later. Yeah. Um, and did that. So that was uh, my introduction. And when we got, we had a couple dogs that had come from Vietnam to Korea. Um, and they had to be put down because they were so vicious that no handler could handle them. Yeah. And then the dogs we had where we were at, they were just... They were just, I, I considered them insane in some cases, the dogs. Right, really? They yeah. were focused on what they were supposed to do. Yeah. And they knew their handler. They loved their handler. There was no issues there. But anybody else came around. Wow. They, you know, you had to be careful. Yeah. I, like I said, I, I heard stories of the war dogs of that period. And uh, the, I guess they were sending them down in holes even after. Yeah. Some of the they had in the holes. Yeah. They had, imagine when the dogs coming did, down after. Dog, right dogs that did tunnel work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah tunnel work. Tunnel, yeah. tunnel dogs. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so you end up, uh, you go from Korea, you go into Vietnam for a year, and then you end up in, in Germany. Yeah. Um, you're running an MP there at the wall for four years? No, I did that probably for two years, and then two years I was, I was investigations. So then you think it was 74 that you ended up back in the States? 74, here. I ended up back in the States in Maryland, um, worked some security jobs there. Uh, then we went out to Texas, and then from Texas back to Germany as a civilian. And I was over there probably another two years, maybe a little bit longer. And you were running a restaurant at that point. And yeah, I had just a small little restaurant. I, I served, everybody had pizza places. I served American food, mm. um, deep fried trout, fried chicken, french fries. And so mm. I didn't have any problems with customers from GIs, you know, because yeah. tired of eating pizza after a while. And, uh, where was that at in Germany? That was in uh, Berlin. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was right across from where I, I was stationed at, oh, actually, okay. for in uh, Andrews, Andrews, uh, we call it Andrews Barracks. It's Andrews Concern, is in the German. Mm. And it was, uh, the, Andrews Concern was, actually, if you research it, it was a big place for the SS during the war. Oh. And it was a school and just everything. They had a big pool in there. Uh, which they would occasionally drain it and shoot people and mm. whatever. But mm. uh, so that's that's still there. It now belongs to the German government. And they have a museum wow. there. Then the relationship sort of went sideways, and I said, "Well, I'm going back to the states." And I went back to the states, and uh, it was still really uh, not a lot going on. But I worked in a factory back in Carlisle, shoe factory up there in Carlisle. Yeah. Like you and said, but in that period, you were it, thinking about getting into policing. Yeah, I was, and it was it was it was a no go. Still, I just I nobody went even Maryland. I looked Pennsylvania. Just nobody was hiring. Uh, so I did go back in the army. That's when I went into special forces. I mean, well, you, I start. You can't just go in and say I want to be special forces, right? Well, I did. <laughs> I, I, I did. But the, and that that story goes back because 
if we have time, just a really short. When I was in jump school the first time, yeah. okay, there was a guy um, and I. We were they were they were recruiting for special forces. Well, you got to figure at that time period, I was probably just just six feet, and I probably weighed 145, soaking wet. Okay, not your image of a, you know, <laughs> a Green Beret, so to speak. Um, so anyway, we, we, we went through, we did the training and all that stuff and um, you know, the recruiting training. And, and the guy said, he said to me, the recruiter, he says, how old are you? I said, I'm 18. He said, well, you have to be 19 to join. I said, well, I'll be 19 in January. He said, yeah, that's not going to work. And so you're going to have to come back. So well, in the meantime, I got injured. I left jump school and I just kind of forgot about it. Oh. So now here we are 10 years later oh. and I'm in the recruiting office. I said, I want to go back in the army. He said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be in special forces. I wanted to do that a long time ago. And he says, you're in luck. He says, they're recruiting straight from the street now. Really? I go, really? He said, yeah, sign here. So I had to go to Fort uh, Leonardwood. Missouri, that's where I was. Okay. Two weeks, what they called uh, Minuteman training. They get you reoriented into the Army and all that stuff. And and uh, so I had started over at the E-2, and uh, I went from there. I went to uh, jump school, finished. I went to infantry school, go into what they called SF company, and that was kind of like your uh, filter. Oh, yeah, and, I guess you're not assigned to a unit. No, 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 you're not even trained. Uh, you're not even trained. Yeah. You, you finished, like I said, I finished infantry school, finished jump school, and I was qualified to go. Everything was passing, so I was qualified to go in. I still had to make it through SF Company to um, be able to go to the course. It's like the Rangers, they have to go through the uh, training period to see if they're fit to go into the course and they right. can make it and all that stuff. So I went through that, went into training, passed all that, went into training, started special forces training. And then I, when I graduated, it's kind of funny because uh, later on I went back to be the um, NCOIC or the main, the head trainer of SF company. Really? Yeah. So then I was in charge of all these guys coming in wow. and getting them squared away and all that. Man, so tell me about the, the training getting in there. Well, it was broken down into three <clears throat> phases. Phase one was your initial kind of stuff and you we went out to um, a place called Camp McCall which had been there since World War II and been utilized since World War II. Um, we uh, we just learned the basic stuff about special forces, about map reading and and caching stuff in the forest and so forth. Uh, basic survival. You know, if we were successful in phase one, then we would come back. I think we had a downtime for just a week or so. Then we went to phase two. Phase two at that time was our uh, MOS, okay? I was uh, weapons. Uh, I wanted to be in weapons. And there was uh, communications. There was engineering. There was medics. Uh, and so we each had our own different schools that we went to. The medics was by far the longest. They were sent down to... Um, Texas, and where they went through this really intense medical school, and then they had uh, stuff also in Fort Bragg where they went as well. Um, the um, engineers went back out to Fort Leonard Wood, and they learned 
engineer stuff, how to build stuff, but also how to blow it up. They did a lot of extensive mm. work with, mm. with uh, explosives and so forth. Yeah. So anyway, I was I stated Bragg to go through the weapons course. Okay. So what was that all about? I mean, no... well, we had to learn fifty-one different weapons, and they were still utilizing at that time. They, there wasn't a big transition. I mean, we were still somewhere in between World War II and Korea and, you oh, know, right. yeah. Vietnam and that type of thing. So we had all those European weapons and German weapons and whatnot that we had to learn. So it wasn't just U.S. weapons? It was no, no. We weapons. had because of the fact that special forces at that time, and I I'm, can't speak for them now, but I'm sure it's the same. The mission's the same. We were force multipliers. <clears throat> so we were trained up. We were trained to be trainers. So we would go into a foreign country and we would train them in whatever specialty we had so that they would be better uh, equipped to handle whatever it was. And then we'd kind of link up with them, so to speak. Hmm. To do that, we had to know all these weapons hmm. because we might encounter somebody that's carrying an M1 Grand or a some kind of German, you know, K98 or something. <clears throat> we had to be familiar with those weapons. Wow. And that meant, at that time, the M1 Garand and the M14 were almost identical weapons, okay? We had to break both of those rifles down, put all the parts in a box, shake the box up, dump it out on the floor, and we had to put them back together again. <laughs> oh, we were geez. timed to do that. Really? Well, we had a familiarization, you know, time period before that. It wasn't just, you know, here's two rifles, put them. We all, we had all the parts on the floor. We just had to pick out, okay, this this looks like something in an M1, you know. Is that right, and really? we put them all together. <laughs> oh, and, but, you know, it was one of those things, it's like we were saying, what do we have to do? What, what's this about? You yeah. know, well, you might be in a foreign country and, you know, you might run into this, you know. Uh, you might run into uh, some of these guys might have a broken down M14 or broken down M1 Garand, and they're trying to make them work and they don't work and they don't understand why. <clears throat> you have to know what you're looking at. Yeah. So that was probably, in my estimation, probably the, the hardest part of, oh, really? of that yeah. course. So you didn't have any problems with the physical part of it? No, the physical part was a bear. I mean, they literally walked us or marched us or, I don't know, rucksacked us to death. Because in, in, we were, yeah. Fort Bragg's nothing but pine cones and sand. Oh, yeah. So you, we would go out in the fallout in the morning and, we had to have at least at least 40 to 45 pounds of rocks or something in our rucksack. Jeez. And then this little guy, I forget what his name is, he escapes me. But this guy, I don't think he was human, but he, he was like <laughs> five foot seven or something like that. And he handled the rucksack marches. And he he would always go down these trails where you, you your sands is up to your ankles. And oh, it's geez. like, you know, you're falling behind. Move it up. Let's go. Jeez. Move it. And we're, we're like dying back here, Sergeant, you know? Yeah. But we had that kind of stuff. And then there was other other things. We had to do virtually everything that we would have to do in to train somebody else and uh, also to survive in that environment wherever they would send us, that type of thing. But, I mean, you had you probably had trainers, you know, straight out of Vietnam, obviously, at this point. I mean, these are, these are guys that had yeah. experience in, in war yeah. you know, and guerrilla warfare specifically. I mean, yeah, we had we had a lot of those guys, be, and they handled the part where, uh, well, even in infantry school uh, at, at Fort Benning, 
uh, they had guys there, and they had mock villages, mm. and we'd have to patrol those villages. And as we go through, we'd learn things, and you know, get blown up and get shot and whatnot. But there was a learning process of, of everything. The same thing uh, they had at Fort Bragg, and uh, they would handle some of that training. I guess their incentive was to keep you alive, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It was it was good. It was good training. So what what unit did you go into then after after the training? Well, after that, I was supposed to be going to the seventh. Um, well, our whole group that we came in together were supposed to be going to the seventh Special Forces down there, and uh, I got taxed with going to uh, the Institute for Military Assistance to be a trainer, and so that's where I stayed. Hmm. And then I I was there for I think two years, almost three, and they extended me. And then I had, I had in that meantime, I had decided my greatest desire was to be a helicopter pilot. Oh, really? Okay, because oh. I seen these guys in Vietnam, and they were like, they were just like one with the machine, so to Some speak. They just, guys, you know, yeah. they're there. Yeah. And um, at that time, they were really building up um, the Special Forces uh, side of the 160th uh, Special Forces uh, Aviation Unit, hmm. and. Um, so they were looking for helicopter pilots. So I, I took the written test and passed. Didn't do real good on, well, I did good, but not good enough on the fixed wing, but I did really well on the helicopter. So I went in and took the physical, passed the physical, and all the other interviews and everything that you had to go through, and just sat back when I was waiting on, on that to come through. And um, <laughs> I get a letter from the Army saying, oh, congratulations, Sergeant Albert. You're one of the top 10 NCOs in the Army, and we want you to be a recruiter. Oh. And at that time, it was you were either going to be a recruiter or you were going to be a drill sergeant. And I says, I want to be a drill sergeant. If you're going to make me do this, yeah. I want to be a drill sergeant. That's where I'm, I'm oriented to. I'm not an office guy. Yeah. And uh, I, that went back and forth, and finally I got a letter from the general. and a general, and he said, you're either going to be a recruiter or you're going to get out of my army. Oh, jeez. So I mean, this was a time, what, what year was this? This was 1980. Yeah, so there wasn't, I mean, there was really nothing going on as far as conflicts are concerned. So no. So yeah. when you went back in the training, was it was it before that period? And were you at Fort Bragg? Yeah, I was at Fort Bragg. So you were down there training yeah, at Fort in, Bragg? Yeah, in SF Company, the company that where everybody comes in at. Oh, wow. And we ran all the training, all the physical PT, and then we were in classrooms all day. We'd mess with them right, and stuff yeah. like that to see where they were at. Yeah, and we just did all the things that everybody did to us when we were went yeah. through. Wow. <laughs> so were you specifically weapons training yeah. in weapons at that point? Though? Yeah, or, I was. Or did you do anything else, or was it no. mainly centered around weapons? Backing up a little bit before before I made it to SF Company, and I had an op opportunity to go to sniper school. Mm. I said, Yeah, I'll take it. They said, Well, we got an opening. Go to it. So I went there, graduated, came back. And that's when I ended up in SF Company too. So I was angry because here I had undergone all this training and stuff like that, and then they wanted me to go be a recruiter. I wasn't seeing it the Army way, so I was, so what, a, what I was a knucklehead. What'd you do? I got out. You just got out at that point. I got out. 1980. 1980. And oh, wow. um, uh, that time I went back to uh, Carlisle. I went to the unemployment office, and there was a it was a recruiting poster up there for York City Police. Mm. And I said, "Wow, I think I'm going to join that." And I said, "That that's my opportunity now." P 
people at the recruiting, I mean, at the uh, unemployment office said, no, nah, you, you got to read the fine print there. They're looking for minorities. You're not a minority. <laughs> I said, I don't care. I'm going to yeah. go still. I can still take the test, can I? Great. Yeah, you can go. You can still do that. But you're not going to go anywhere. So, you know, come on back and we'll put you back in the factory. <laughs> it's like, okay. So I, I went and I took the written test and passed. And I took the physical and passed that and I was accepted. There was six of us. I think there was six of us taken on at that time. Really? Yeah. Oh, so that was it. That's how you got into New York City. Yeah. And what year was that? That was 1981. 1981, you went to yeah. New York City. Yeah. What was the testing process like then? Was it a consortium where like a bunch of people showed up to test for it? And how many mm -hmm. people would have been there? No, it's, I don't exactly remember how many people were there. It was a good, good amount of people there, uh, but it wasn't a consortium like they do now. It was the individual York City put on their own training. Oh, okay. I mean, their own uh, testing and so forth so okay so it was a written test and then a uh a, a pt test pt sort of like you know going around in the gym and different different obstacles and things like that so what was the, the academy like then was it still in harrisburg here or no i went through the state police academy oh okay because at that time they were um they had the state police and then they had the municipal um side of it but they were troopers who who trained us oh really for so the most part was yeah, it the same troopers. place than the state police academy yes now? really yes how long was the academy at that point uh, i think it was 20 weeks and how long was the fto program it was uh, i believe 18 months were you familiar with york at all or is that a total new city to you totally new to me at all i mean i had never been in it um fact, it was funny because when we went to the academy they Troopers up there kept saying, you know, you guys are crazy for wanting to be down in York. <laughs> By the time the academy was over, we think we were going to the Wild West. <laughs> right. uh, so we, did, we didn't know what it was like, you know. How was it working down there? Uh, it was it was nice. Uh, it was kind of like old school in a way because it, depending on who your training officer was, that uh, they would either talk to you or they wouldn't talk to you. Mm. And just tell you to sit there and shut up and just... Learn just just to watch. Okay, but what if I have a question? Shut up. You know, <laughs> yeah. some of them were like that. Yeah. I of course I I came with the experience of being a military policeman, so I knew the basics and that That's type true. of thing. I yeah. just had to learn how to put it in the civilian world and so forth. There's a big learning curve as far as that goes. A lot of differences. What was the worst of the cases you saw down there? Uh, probably. The very worst two cases I had, and they were both when I was leaving the department, that end of the my career there. Um, <clears throat> one was a, um, a fatal accident, which was up on uh, South George Street. Mm -hmm. And the other one was a suicide on the east end of town. A kid, and I didn't know at the time when I walked in on it, until I did some investigations who he was. <clears throat> it was a kid that I had talked off a roof, roof like about six years prior to that. Yeah. And he was going to kill himself. He was just a young kid then. I think he was 14 or 15 at that time. And uh, <clears throat> so I went in and to this scene, uh, it was... It was a suicide, but it was an accidental suicide because he had been arguing with his girlfriend. Uh, he said, well, I'll show you. And he grabbed a double barrel shotgun and put it underneath his chin and pulled the trigger. Well, he guess thought it was empty. Oh. And uh, it wasn't. Mm. So those are probably, in the scheme of things, my worst. Yeah. It just seemed like in York City, there was different classes of people 
we used to say, in the daytime, you have Class A, they're going to work and they're doing the normal stuff. Five o'clock, they leave, then Class B comes out. They're kind of rowdy, but they're not so bad. They're, you know, and then they leave, and then at midnight, you know, the real bad guys come out. Yeah. They have the most, the most problems and stuff like that. I was working the loop one night, and I pulled over this young girl for doing stupid stuff like people did on the loop. Wait, what's the loop? Huh? What's the loop? The loop was Market and Philadelphia Street. Oh, okay. And it was Saturday night and Friday night, so oh, it was just so constant. Like the circuit down there. Yeah, the circuit. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay yeah. we called it the loop. Oh, okay. And so anyway, I pulled her over, and, and you know, uh, she didn't really do anything bad. It was just, you know, something stupid. And I started talking to her while I was waiting for her information to come back. And, and uh, she noticed, I think I had a Special Forces ring on. She goes, were you in Special Forces? I said, yeah. And she said, well, my dad's a major in Special Forces. I said, really? She says, you might know him. And she mentioned his name, but I, I said, no, it's not familiar. I said, you know, it's, uh, don't, don't remember that name. And I said, where's he, where's he at? And she said, well, he works in Baltimore. I said, Baltimore? I said, what special forces unit is in Baltimore? Yeah. She said, well, it's a 20 special forces group. It's a National Guard unit. So I'm thinking National Guard can't be National Guard. It doesn't sound, you know, doesn't fit together. And um, she said, would you like to talk to him? I said, yeah, I would. And I told her, I said, you know, I said, I, you can tell him I left the 11th when it shut down. And I said, I'm kind of just hanging here and I'd like to get back into it, but I don't want to go back active full time. So a couple of days later, I get a phone call from this major, really? which is her dad. <laughs> and she, he said, well, first, I want to thank you for pulling my daughter over for what she did. She told me. And she said, I, he said, I thank you for not, uh, not being too hard on her. He says, and I also want to offer you, if you want to, we have a slot down here in the 20th. If you come down, I'll get you in. So I went wow. down, met him, got uh, involved with, you know, being recruited again and went in and, and uh, uh, just kind of stayed with them the whole time. I went in Charlie Company. There's Charlie Company and Bravo Company. So you're doing that. And, and how does, so the National Guard is not like, not like the reserves, like every other one weekend a month type thing, is it? Yeah. Oh, it is? Okay. Yeah, it's it's one weekend a month and two weeks in the summer. Oh, okay. But the thing that I found out with the National Guard, and I'm thinking, you know, okay, National Guard, they don't really do that much. You know, they just kind of hang out and, and whatever. But we did more stuff in the National Guard than we ever did in the reserves. And even on active duty, you know, there was, wasn't a whole lot of stuff really? going on. Mm. And uh, so it was, it was pretty cool. And I... Mm. I got, I think I was there, that was in 80, 83, I think it was, somewhere in that time frame. I can't remember for sure. But in 84, we went to, um, uh, we went to Portugal. Hmm. Uh, then we went over to Italy a couple times because uh, they had airborne units stationed over there. Hmm. And uh, we would link up with them, and we were also linked up with the, the uh, 10th Special Forces Group mm. in Bad Tolts that we trained in the mountains all the time, huh. uh, you know, climbing, whatever you do in the mountains, everything, repelling, whatnot. Where did you guys train around here, then? Did you go to Baltimore for your tra your one we went, month? We or? went all over. I mean, okay. uh, we would link up with the Coast Guard down there. We would do sea ops. Oh, okay. Um, 
we would concentrate on training Inter, you know, internationally type things. Like I said, we went to Portugal. We were actually, we went over with a, a SEAL team to Portugal, hmm. and we were the first American units to be there since Reagan oh. was in office. Oh, damn. And so that was an experience in itself because the Airborne was communist, the, the commandos were socialists, and they didn't really work together, but one year the, the socialists would be in charge, and next year the communists would be in charge. We don't know how that worked out, yeah. how that happened. But anyway, yeah. our company was divided up and, you know, I was blessed to be with the socialists, right, with the yeah. commandos, because they were a bunch of good guys. The guys that went to be with the paracadistas, the paratroopers, yeah. he, they, they said, we won't ever do that again. They oh, wouldn't talk strange, to us. They wouldn't, really. you know, they would, we would do training and they would do the training, but there was no camaraderie like really? it was with the, the, yeah, with the commandos. Jeez, that's insane. But you got injured somewhere in there. So you're you're still working in New York City, and, and there's a parachute accident. I had actually, yes, I had actually got injured in 1988. What happened there? Uh, bad landing. I thought I was, the land, I thought the ground was there, and I loosened up to make my parachute fall, and it's just like, I did it at the same time that all the air went out of my chute, and I just went like that, down on my, on my back, my buttocks and my back. And I laid there for a while. I was in a ditch beside the runway. And I laid there for a while, and I thought, I'm, I'm going to be crippled for the rest of my life now. But it hurt that bad? Like, or you hit that hard? Well, see, that was the point. Then I remembered, my brain says, you're feeling pain. You're okay. Oh. And mm. it's like, oh. So anyway, I laid there for a while and got up, got my chute, got it all up, and we carried it back to where the point was. And... And they were had been looking for me because they, you know, everybody had already landed and right. went back to the went went back to the the pickup point. Yeah. And I, I come in there and they said, "Where the heck were you at? Where'd you land?" I told them. I said, "Wasn't far from here." I said, "But I got hurt." I said, "I got slammed into the ground pretty oh, so hard." You made it up. You had, you managed to get up and right and get to where you had to go. Right. How and far of a walk was that? It was about a half a mile. Oh, okay. So they took me out to the to the uh, doctors and you know the medic. Uh, he looked at me and he said, "Well, he said I, I don't think you broke anything." He said, "You had a pretty bad uh, fall, but he said I think uh, you're you're going to be okay. It's probably just a bad strain." Okay, doc, a bad strain, whatever. Yeah. So I went on and I continued to do my mountain stuff. I continued to do PT. Really, we did all this stuff. Oh. I mean, it was going on long years. Now here it is, Desert Storm, we're called up. And all in this time frame, I have been dealing with pain. I've been dealing with back issues. Jeez. I'm working as a cop. I'm wearing 40 pounds of gear on yeah, my waist. Um, so we go to Fort Bragg, and we had to go through what they called a belt line. And it basically, you go to each station, and they, okay, your insurance is intact, and okay, this and that, and blah, blah, blah. Well, I got to the medical section, and the medic sitting there, he says, well, I see you had a bad accident in 1988. He said, how are you? I said, well, outside of pain all the time, I said, I'm fine. I do all my stuff. I, you know, I'm not, no issues me carrying a heavy rucksack, climbing mountains. I'm okay. He goes, no, you're going to have to go, you're going to have to go to a neurosurgeon and be cleared through this before you, you know, you're sent overseas. Mm. Okay, whatever. So... 
I remember back when we were gearing up, training up for uh, to be to be activated. We went on a 25 mile road march. Well, at the time, I got my back went numb and I had a, developed a lump in my right calf. Mm. But I continued to walk, and they wanted to. You know, you need to get on the Jeep. No, I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm halfway through. I'm going to go. So I did it. Everything was good. No other issues. I took the rucksack off, and it was like, oh, that felt so good. And uh, I let it go. <clears throat> so at the belt line, he sent me to the neurosurgeon. So I walked in over there, and he said, Sergeant Albert, let me ask you a question. I said, yes, sir. He said, do you have a lump in your right calf? I said, yes, sir, I do. He said, you have a broken back. No, I don't. He said, yes, you do. I said, no, sir, I don't. Yes, you do. I said, no, sir, I've been doing everything for you know all these years. I'm fine. He said, who's the doctor in this office? <laughs> you are, sir. He said, I'm going to put you on. I'll show you. And they gave an M MRI or whatever they gave me at that time. And uh, he said, you see this stuff here and here and in the middle of your back and the lower back and the below your lower back? And he says, those are all crushed discs. Oh, wow. He says... The only reason why you did not become a paraplegic is because your your physical conditioning, really? your muscles kept everything intact. Wow! I said, huh. "What am I going to do now?" He said, "You're done." Really? I'm, I'm I'm done. What do you mean I'm done? He said, "No more jumping." He says, "I don't care what SF does with you if you want to be whatever." He said, "But you're not jumping anymore. You're off the team." He said. And your A-team days are over with. Mm. So I went back to the unit and a couple guys that had gone through similar injuries, but other parts of their body, they said, ah, oh, just tear the paperwork up and just come on back to work. I'm going, no, I don't think I can do that. I said, you know, if I do and something happens, oh, yeah, I you said, you know, cripple, yeah. I don't relish being in a wheelchair yeah. for the rest of my life. Yeah. So that's how that sort of ended. Jeez. And uh, then, of course, the word, because we had a guy, uh, the chief has met him, Phil Roberts. Um, he, was, he was in our unit, too. He was uh, working in New York City. And uh, he had said about me getting injured. He thought I had gotten injured then uh, at Bragg. And so everybody back here in New York City was thinking, oh, Mike Albert has a broken back. He's he's going to be crippled, and you know this whole thing just went out of right. control. And I said, yeah. I said, no, I'm I'm fine. I just I just can't jump anymore. I'm done. Yeah. Wow. So how many jumps did you have? You think? A couple hundred, several Is hundred. That right. That oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you I, guys are I constantly jumping. Jumped. Yeah, we jumped everything. I mean, we we jumped equipment. We jumped static line. We even jumped without parachutes into the water. Really? Yeah, that's another story in itself. But when we were with the Coast Guard, we did uh, uh, water waterborne operations, and basically they took us off out in a, in a Huey. They would actually fly more, not more than fifty feet off the water. But as each man went out, the chopper got light, and I was always the last guy out oh, because I was the, I was the team sergeant. Yeah. And so when I went out, we were maybe a hundred feet in the air. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and you come down and you, you know, your feet, you, you know, there's a, there's a way to do it. And you come down and you hit and you go under and you think you're never going to get up to the top again. And, 
and uh, stuff like that. But uh, you <laughs> yeah, know, what the heck? But so those things we didn't really count those as jumps, but we we did Jeez. all kinds of jumps. We jumped from 600 feet. Mm. We did that in training, and mm. that's barely you out the door. Your chute opens, and you're you're there almost. Jeez. And uh, yeah, six hundred like, feet. Yeah. Damn. What the heck? Did you jump after the accident? Oh yeah, after the accident. Yeah, after oh the yeah. Accident. Yeah, from eighty eight to ninety. Yeah, you jumped. I kept jumping. Are you serious? Yeah. And I even I even jumped when I was in uh um Portugal. <laughs> I jumped I jumped with the command um the paracadises over there. I got wings up there on my on the board. You were still jumping. Yeah, I still jumping because I didn't. Back. I didn't know any better. Nobody oh told me. I never. God. I never went back to the doctor and complained about my back. Yeah. I took aspirin. I just went out and did what I was supposed to do. Uh, it, it wasn't really that bad when I was working in the city. I mean, it was a issue sometimes getting in and out of the car, but it wasn't. Didn't aggravate me to a point that I said, you know, I got something seriously wrong. I better go and maybe. Mr. Lughead here should have said, I'm going to the doctor yeah. because this is constant pain. So at some point you met Phil Robertson, you said? Phil Roberts. Phil yeah, Roberts. He, you met him and I guess told him about the, the 20th, right? I went I went through um, the academy with his oh. then-girlfriend, soon-to-be wife, okay. Sally. And then he was working in Red Lion. And as an officer there. As an officer okay. there. And this was back in the early mid early eighties, maybe. Yeah, it was it was in the early eighties. So anyway, a slot opened up, a couple slots opened up in the city because guys were always quitting, and so he came up, got one of them, and he was working there. Cool. He came to me and he said, "Hey," he said, um, "He said I, I've been thinking about that I want to go and be in your unit." And he said, "But I've never been in the military." Oh, he had no military experience. No. Wow. And I said, well, he was just a young guy. He was, you know, 20, just out of, out of college. Oh. And I said, well, you're going to have to go through basic and your AIT and jump school and special forces training. I said, you're going to be going over a year. I said, a year, solid training. I said, how are you going to do that? You're going to quit? He goes, no, they can't. If I go in the military, they can't fire me. Okay. So anyway, long story short, I took him down to the unit. Um, he sat down with a guy down there and they went over everything, told him what the unit was about, what we did and, and so forth. And, um, he said, um, okay. So he joined, hmm. they sent him away. He came back a year later and the chief at the York time, chief hose, he, he said, you can't come back to work. Oh, wow. But he was national guard though, right? So, I mean. He said, well, he says, I can come back to work, sir. But he said, uh, you can't you can't stop me from coming back because of this act, whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, they went back and forth. And finally, Phil called um, somebody in the Army and an Army lawyer called uh, the chief up and basically told him, you know, oh. Roberts is coming back to duty on Monday. And, yeah. You know, so, Phil, you were actually in training with him. You guys would go off on, on training missions together. Yeah. You said you had, you had a story about you guys together over there. Yeah, it was our last time really uh, going out doing, we used to do uh, recon, so to speak. Well, we got taxed. Uh, we were in Italy, and we got taxed to go out <clears throat> and um, do a, a recon of this area. 
and they were supposedly on this road. We were going to be in the mountains, and the road we were overlooking the road in the area. Uh, a convoy of Russian trucks were supposed to come by at a certain time. That military intelligence told us it needed is vital, and we need to count those trucks and everything else we could find about it. So this isn't training. This is, this a, is an actual mission. This is this a is mission. An operation. Yeah. Wow. So um, we we went from where we were at in Italy, and we flew Napa the Earth, which is. Uh, the plane literally flies as low to the ground as they can, and they come to a trees, and they go over and Jeez. mountains, and you really? know. So you, you, it's one of those things where you know you're either going to throw up here after a while, or <laughs> right. you're going to sleep, you know, yeah. that type of thing. Um, anyway, long story short, we're we're out there, and we reached this area, and I have pictures back there. I can actually show you the difference. Um, we got there; it was all nice and sunny and shine and. You know, this is going to be easy. You know, we're just going to dig in, and we'll be able to see the road. The road was clear down there. There's no issues whatsoever. Um, so Phil and I, he, I was doing intel, and and he was doing the uh, the demo stuff, and so we went down the side of the hill, and we dug into the side of the mountain, and you can see in the pictures, we actually made us little. Uh, lounges, the dirt. <laughs> yeah, nice. You know, he, he's yeah. an engineer. He could do that. Right. Kind of stuff. So we dug out. We could die out. There's a big side of this hill and big, and and we put our sleeping bags in there. And we were just in there sitting like this is pretty cool. Yeah, this is nice. And so when it came time, to okay, we get to get set for you know such and such a time. The, the fog came in uh. and it started to rain. Ah, mm. we couldn't see anything. Uh. We could we we couldn't even see, probably fifty feet down the down the mountain, let alone see the road. Yeah. So we could hear traffic, but we couldn't see them, and it didn't do us any good. So we were stuck out there, and the rest of the unit was back about, I'd say a quarter of a mile mm. behind us. And um, it was just you two out there. It was just he and I out there. Yeah. And so we kind of like, I would sleep and he would watch and I would watch and he would sleep, whatever, you know, hoping this fog would go away. And I was listening to, I had a small radio, so I was, I couldn't speak Swiss, but I could understand German. So their language is pretty similar. Mm. So I would listen in and in the weather channel, try to see when this thing is coming and going. And uh, maybe we could get an extension if nothing else. I got up and he, he says, uh, I'm not ready to go to sleep yet. I'm just going to sit back. I said, okay, I'm going to go up here and see what's going on with these guys. They were gone. I went up there and it's like, where are they at? <laughs> what? what happened? They left. What? I went back and said, hey, Phil, it's just you and me. <laughs> he goes, well, yeah, I know where it's you and me. I said, no, it's you and me. They're gone. He goes, what? <laughs> I said, yeah. He said, what are you going to do? I said, we're going to stay. I don't know what happened to them. We're gonna have to figure this out, and because um, we didn't have a point at that time, we didn't have a pickup point. At least it wasn't relayed to us. Right. A pickup point where we could go to by you know reading our compass and, and maps. Yeah. So we're back there and we're just kind of snuggled into the our chairs trying to figure out what's going on, and uh, here this guy comes out of the woodwork. You know, he comes out of the woods. It was one of our guys. Mm. And he's wearing civilian clothes. What? I'm going, what are you, where'd you come from? Where are you guys at? 
He said, oh, man, we got ran out. He said, we didn't bother with you guys because we knew that you were shielded. He said, but we had to, we had to leave the area. We thought for sure that, th that they would, you know, scarf you up. Said there was, you know, German troops, and we assumed East German troops because we didn't know for sure where we were at. Yeah. He says, here, I brought back a bottle of beer. What? And, where'd you get that from? <laughs> we're in the middle of the mountains. He said, don't ask. He said, let's go. So there was another guy, uh, the medic, he was there, came out, and uh, I think it was me and two, three, four, maybe five of us, all total. And we took off and, you know, they were going back to, he said, we're going to be picked up in such and such a time. We got to hustle. Kavanaugh or something like that. He didn't have any any heavier clothes on than a pair of jeans and a, and a, a sweatshirt or something. He got really cold. Yeah. So we had to stop probably three or four miles away. And uh, Phil actually kind of saved his life because he said, I'm going to put you in a sleeping bag and I'm getting in there with you. Oh. And he said, no, you're going to have to warm up. Yeah. Because your body, your core. The medic looked at him. He said, "Your your core is too is too low." He said, "You're Jeez. gonna you're gonna you know fall out." Yeah. So that was an incident there. So anyway, we made it back, and the chopper came in and picked us up and flew us out. But wow, um, yeah. And this was where? Someplace in Europe. Oh, yeah. Wow. On those black forest down there. We don't, we had no idea really where we were at. Yeah. So they just dropped you off and just yeah, they said, you do Here's, yeah, this is we had the coordinates of the road and." And where we were supposed to be, and that's where we ended up. And we thought it was going to be a, a, an easy thing to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, hey, it's good training. We can, we can just ride it out. And, oh, and then that storm moved in, and <laughs> yeah, it was right. like, oh. yeah. <laughs> you end up so, isolated out there. But it was it was a learning experience. But it was. Yeah. You know, he almost blew us up one time too. We were in training. <laughs> we were out doing training with explosives, and and uh, he said, "Well, I want to put some, I want to put some." Uh, explosives on that five-ton truck derelict truck over there yeah okay that'd be cool well that just obliterated the truck and then he wanted to make napalm so he <laughs> had a 50 gallon drum and it had gas in there and he poured ivory flakes in there and then and then set it off and that was that thing it's like whoa i mean Jeez. talk about intense heat i mean i i noticed in vietnam that napalm strikes yeah. that they had in there yeah but never had i ever been that close to, <laughs> to, to napalm and i says we won't be doing that anymore Jeez. <laughs> i think after desert storm of course they they sent basically sent me home and said you know you've We'll get you a medical discharge and oh, you know all yeah. that stuff. And yeah. I got to a point where it's like, okay, I've got to make the decision. I love being a cop, and I've been here ten years now. I could do another ten, but it was just—I don't know. It was I think there was seven guys that quit within a frame, and I was oh, really? one of them. Yeah, oh. just wow. we're, we're done. You got out of policing totally. I got out of policing total. So what'd you do at that point then? Uh, just did our business, and that was it. How long did you do that? <laughs> uh, until I got talked into going back into police work. <laughs> One of the guys who had left York City had gone to Marietta, mm. and he was over there, and they wanted to do the PR24 training. They said, well, I know a guy who's an instructor, but he's not a cop any longer. Said, well, that's all right. You know, let's talk to him. So anyway, long story short, I took his slot. He wanted to go to Virginia. And so he talked me into 
going over there. I said, I really, oh. I'll, I'll train you, but I'm not going to. So I went over and did the training for them and stuff like that. And eventually they said, come on, you know, you join over here. All right. And I told my wife that didn't go over well, but yeah, because you know, <laughs> right. then she was, she was left with the business to run pretty much and, yeah. and everything. But, uh, so you ended up getting into Marietta PD, and this is before the transition to Susquehanna Regional, right? Yeah, yeah, hmm. yeah. We we did that transition, yeah. Oh, there. you were there I was there happened. for it, yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. All right, so how long were you with Marietta before that happened? I was with Marietta from 1990. I went away to Desert Storm in the beginning of 1991, came back in summer. And so I was there until they switched over, which I think it was 1996. And then when Desert Storm came up, you know, they said, um, I forget how the term they used, but basically our, our counting is off the books. You guys can buy what you want, civilian equipment. So we had, we had Loa shoes, boots and stuff like that, which at that time were like, you know, man, if you got Loa's, you know, yeah, right. you're not eating anything but soup for the next two months. You know? <laughs> right. And so... So, yeah, I read that, I guess, the, the Gulf War was one of the largest um, activations of the, the 20th Special Forces. And I guess they activated you guys, but it was so quick that, you know, a lot of you guys didn't get pulled into it, right? I mean, but some did get attached to the 7th, I guess. And, yeah. And okay, I see what you mean. I think is what happened there is <clears throat> at the end of it, you know, you're, you're, you're right. We, we, got, we were all trained up. We were all fit to go. We went to Fort Bragg. We, we stood down at Fort Bragg and we were waiting on orders to go get on the planes. And it's like, the war's over. The war's <laughs> right. over. Yeah. It was like August to yeah. February or something yeah. like that. Totally. Yeah. yeah, that was, it was back in, in February, I think. February, late February, everything ended. Yeah. It's like, well, what the heck? You know, we're not going to get to go over there? And then this, <laughs> this order came down, said they need some people to go work with the Kurds over there. Oh. oh, it's like, yeah, okay, we're going. Yeah. And they, no, you're not. Well, why not? Well, because you're weapons. Oh. Well, so what? That's what I'm trained to do. They said, no, we're only sending medical guys to all the, any, anybody who's a medic. Yeah. They can go over or communications, they can go over. We'll send them, but any, any, uh, uh weapons or, uh, Explosive, like explosive guys. Yeah. No, you guys can't go because yeah. you're you're considered. Oh, that is interesting. That okay. class of people that they don't want armed. Yeah. People over there, and it's like, holy crap! So well, now guys, what do we do? I know, right? Yeah. What you did know? you do? They said, well, um, we'll find something. So we ended up staying at Bragg for a while. Uh, like I said, we we didn't really get home and get discharged until sometime. In June, oh. somewhere in there. Okay. We just continued to do stuff down there at Bragg, and and uh, I guess they were waiting to see if things heated back up again. I see. Uh, that was the thought. Okay. And at my time down there, I was um, uh, the air ops. I was working in, in uh, air ops uh, region. Um, so we would coordinate any units that were going out into the field, you know, and stuff like that. And we would play these war games and stuff like oh, that. So okay. did a lot of that. After I got off the, uh, police work over here and uh, you know, basically lost my job because of my back, <clears throat> then I went in and got my private investigator's license. I got um, uh, federal uh, credentials to do work for them, too, on the side. 
And then I we had that for a while, and then we went to the Philippines. So Interesting. I kind of lost track. Well, so you leave, you end up getting out of uh, York City then, um, and Phil stays there at that Phil point? Phil stayed, yeah. He, he, stayed he retired from there. You got your private detective's license. So what was the process to get that? Uh, go down to the uh, courthouse, fill out an application. Then the application would go into the district attorney's office, and then the district attorney would forward it to the courts. And then I'd have to oh. go in before the judge and be interviewed by the judge. And they would ask, you know, well, what's your intent? Uh, and they go over your qualifications, what you had had for them. Um, and I just said, well, I, I just feel like I want to I want to do something different. I want to do the criminal stuff. Uh, I said, you know, maybe um, looking for missing people and stuff like that, you know, that type of thing. And uh, I said, you know, I've, I've done that in the past. And I said, it, I just kind of have a knack for doing something like that. And um, they said, okay. Hmm. Is that a are. state license or a county? No, oh, it's state. It's state. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. State. Yeah, wow. I, could, I could literally go anywhere I wanted to. Is that right, really? I wasn't there as a private detective. <laughs> this is coming out wrong. Um, to get a case. And the reason why is because I was contacted not long after I had my license posted it. Uh, put sent out, you know, hey, I'm new and I want some work and whatever. Uh, this guy called me up. He said, would you want to do federal investigations? I'm going... Well, what are you talking about? He said, well, we need, we're, we're overloaded. And he said, we need guys with uh, legit private investigative companies or, or licenses. And he said, you'll come down here. Uh, we have a training school. And you go through that. And then we give you a, a, a secure laptop. And you go out and whatever... Um, whatever investigations we send you, whether they're background investigations or follow-up investigations, um, then you go out and do that. I said, I talked over my wife, and I said, I'm going to go for it. Yeah. She said, okay. So I had to go down to Maryland. I think it was down there a week. And came back, and I had this really cool laptop that was just, you know, integrated into the federal system. And, yeah. you know, you couldn't play on it or anything. It was just right. strictly for that. And it had, you bring it up and, you know, and it was reporting system and that's what you did. And then I just sat back and then every so often I would get a secure package from FedEx and it would have the investigations, whatever they were in there. And I would just yeah. finish those up, either background checks or going out, talking to people uh, on follow-up investigations, whatever they had. And the cool thing about it was I had federal credentials, okay? Mm -hmm. But there was other guys that were in the class with me down there who had been private investigators longer. Mm. And they had already, uh, I guess, done other investigations. And uh, they had, like, FBI credentials and, okay. you know, these type of credentials over here for DNA. Yeah. And it's like, how do you do this? He said, we just throw all the stuff in our briefcase and whatever case we're working on, we get the proper credentials out. We go meet oh, is that right, really? show them <laughs> our credentials. And yeah, I said, well, heck? that sounds kind of weird. And he says, yeah, yeah but you know, it was a decent job. I mean, I went all over the place, not just Pennsylvania. I went yeah. down into D.C. and Maryland and you know other places and stuff like that, wherever the people lived. Yeah. Um, and, and did that and then typed up all the investigations and stuff like that. And then they just, you know, paid me once a month and whatever it was. So what did you do after what? How long did you do that? And then why did you get out of it? Well, um, I'm in my office one day, which was in my house. And my wife, Lois, she comes in and she has a 
has a uh, magazine and she says, here, you got to read that article. Uh, it's, a, it's a one ad for, you know, an investigator. Hmm. I said, okay, I'll read it. You know, three weeks later, I said, oh, I guess I'll look at it. So it was for the International Justice Mission. Hmm. And uh, I read it over and I thought, hmm, I'll see what they're about. So I um, called up the, the number and the guy talks to me, basically gives me an interview over the phone. He said, there'll be somebody else contacting you. I said, okay, uh, that's good. And uh, then this other guy calls me. He says, can you hear me? I said, yeah. But he was a vice president in the company. And he said, he says, I'm in Thailand. He said, I want to make sure you can hear me. I'm going, yeah, I can hear you. He said, uh, I went over all your stuff, blah, blah, blah. He says, would you be interested in going to India? Mm. I said, nah, I, I haven't left anything in India. I don't really want to go to India. You know, it's just not a place where I want to go. <laughs> right. He says, well, then let me name you another one. He said, would you want to go to the Philippines? I said, sure, I'll go to the Philippines. I said, uh, what's entailed with this job? I need, I don't know anything. I don't have any information. Well, we can't tell you what we're doing right now over there, um, but we need people to do it. Oh, jeez. And uh, it's, it involves uh, human trafficking, and we have offices in Thailand and Philippines and South America, you know, I think five or six South American countries. And I said, okay, so anyway, long story short, it was a process, and I had to go down there and sit through basically a eight-hour interview uh, with one guy and then for an hour and then another guy for an hour all the, all the day, that one day. Where was that at? That was down in D.C. At oh, the, okay. At the headquarters. So, I mean, that's how you knew it was legitimate. You actually oh, yeah, met face-to-face yeah. -face before yeah, you went Yeah, met face-to-face -face with him finally. Huh. And uh, so anyway, they said, okay, we'll, we'll call you. And so I uh, waited. It wasn't really had any big hopes on it. it. You know, it just seemed to me that they were looking for somebody, you know, FBI level stuff yeah. maybe, you know, not just basically street cop. But they called me a couple of days later and they said, well, if we're offering you the job as the director of police training. Wow. And I said, well, I thought this was an investigative job. They said, yeah, we have that job open, but you're more suited by your resume and by who we interviewed, that you're much better at being an, a, a trainer yeah. than you are would be as an investigator. Your skills would be lost. He says, that's yeah. what I'm trying to tell you. And um, I mean, Green Berets, that's what you guys do, training, yeah. right? I mean, it's and I said, well, I said, sure, i like to hmm. do that. He said, what do you be? You would be the director of police training for the entire nation of the Philippines. Wow. And you would, rely, you would uh, also back up Cambodia and if you had to go to Thailand and stuff like that. Huh. He said, but you would be the director, but you would be the main instructor. I said, wow. I said, that's pretty heavy. I said, that's a lot of responsibility. He said, yeah. He said, but everything we learned about you and everything, he said, we think that you can handle it. Mm. I said, okay. I said, I'll take the job. But they, they wanted you to move there. Right? They wanted me to move there. Hmm. So... We had just bought a house. Oh, jeez. It was really? like two years old, and it was in a development over in Mount Wolf. Hmm. So I went to her, and I said, well, I called that number, and it looks like um, uh, we're going to be going to the Philippines. She goes, okay. <laughs> and uh, so I went over. I went down to D.C. for 
I think I was down there for a week of training. You know, we had to yeah. go link up, and I linked up with the guy who was going to be an investigator. He was a he was a, a investigator out in Washington State with the sheriff's department out there. And then uh, aftercare director, she was there. She was Filipina uh, American, hmm. and uh, then we had a lawyer that was uh, going to be the head of the office. Well, this lawyer here, he was a he ended up being a total disaster, and they, yeah. they got rid of him after about a month we were over there. Once we got together as a group and everything, we got situated to go over, and then we, we went over. And Lois stayed back here because she had to, we had one child at home oh. uh, yet, and um, plus we had to take care of the house and all that stuff to get rid of that. That was sold, you know, God's blessing on that, I think, because yeah. they just, you know, it just happened too quick, too many right, things right? in yeah. steps, you know. yeah. Because she had said to me, she had said to me one day we were on a walk. This was before I got accepted. And she said, um, what would you say that if we just sold all of our stuff and went off and did what God wanted us to do? I'm going, well, he hasn't talked to me yet, so, you know, we'll see. Yeah. Well, then he did two weeks later. Yeah. And uh, I woke up and it's like, yeah. So we went. I went over. And uh, she was cleaning up back here and getting the daughter situated with uh, our daughter with her ex-husband and so forth. And uh, then she just came on over and we <laughs> just were, were over there for four years. Jeez, four years. So that, <clears throat> what was the organization again? International Justice Mission. Okay. So did they... Were they actually involved in investigations, or were they just mainly a training um, operation? No, they they did actual investigations. They oh, had undercover okay. operatives. Oh, uh, is that right? Really? Well, my partner Tate, uh, he was the investigator. He um, he developed uh, assets from within uh, the community over there. And then they would go out and do the investigations, actually. And him and I would go undercover sometimes, and we would go to these these uh, clubs and th so forth. And we'd uh, kind of hook up with these prostitutes like, and, and just sit with them and talk to them and act like we were interested and start asking them idle questions. And, you know, they were giving us information. They, weren't, they didn't know what they were doing. So we got in a jam one night. It was so funny because this, this is really hilarious. We went out one night, <clears throat> went to this club, and we met these two young ladies. And so we were talking to them, and somebody came over and said, are you going to buy those girls or are you going to leave? And we were starting to get some good stuff from mm. them. I said, we'll buy them. Mm. So we paid for them. And he said, bring them back when you're done. Okay. So we left. And... <laughs> We went out, and our taxi was waiting for us, an undercover cop. And um, we got in a taxi, and I said, uh, you girls hungry? Yeah. You like to have McDonald's? Yeah. So we went down. They took us down to McDonald's. Now, hmm. this is this is like 1 o'clock in the morning. Right. Okay. Yeah. Filipinos don't sleep because it's too hot over there. Oh, so right? they'll sleep when they can, then they'll be out all night. They'll do whatever. Oh. So we take these two girls to McDonald's. Uh we buy them food, and it's a two-story building, so we go up on the second floor. There's a group of Filipinos over here at a table, and we didn't pay any attention to them at all. And both of us are, are fairly new to the Philippines, of course. 
So we're, we sat there, I think, for an hour, hour and a half with them, just getting all the information we could. They were scared to death. And we told them, we said, look, we're not here to do anything with you. We're not going to take you to a hotel. We're not going to rape you. We're not going to have you do anything. Because we found out that these girls had just been trafficked. Mm-hmm. And so everything was new to them. And it's another time, another story, but the way they run things with the trafficking victims. And so we got all the information we could. It was good information. So we left, took them back to the club, dropped them off and paid them uh, and left. So that was on a Saturday night. Sunday morning, Lois and I, we go to church. You know, we found ourselves in a Filipino church and we go in the church, and it's in a, it's in a movie theater in the mall. Hmm. And they had the church before the theater, the theater opened up. So we're going in the line, and this guy was standing there, and he's pastor. He says uh, he knew us. I mean, we we had met him before. We'd had Bible studies with him, and uh, he said, "Mike, where were you at last night? Why?" He said, "Well." And, and Filipinos are blunt. He said, I'm pretty sure I saw you and Tate out with two young ladies. Oh, jeez. So he didn't a, know what McDon- you did. At McDonald's. No, he didn't know what we did because yeah. we didn't tell anybody what yeah. we did over there. Uh-huh. And uh, I said, well, we were working. He said, uh-huh. And Lois was there. She goes, I know where he was at. And she related the story. And he looks at her. He goes, what? I said, Come here. We have to tell you what we do. Oh, yeah. He was with that group of people over there in the McDonald's. He saw us bring these two prostitutes in. They were clearly prostitutes. Yeah. Okay. Right. And he thought we were out running. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) so, uh, yeah. And uh, I said no. And after that, we just, we always laughed at that after a while. So you guys were a link. I mean, you guys are linked up to law enforcement, but I mean, there was yeah. obviously corruption with the. There was major corruption. It was is so bad not to go into a long detail, but uh, we would, we would, I would give the classes. Uh, Tate would prepare the, in, the investigation. All that's ready. He would set up the raid oh, to okay. the club, and then we call everybody in, all the all the players, and I would give my spiel. He would give his spiel, and. I noticed that these cops, certain cops, would sit in the back of the class and they're constantly mm. playing on their cell phones. So what's going on here? Well, then we we got wise to it after the second time. And we showed up at this club and there's like three or four 60-ish women sitting at the bar, toothless. Mm. It's like, okay, where's the young girls at? Yeah, young girls. Oh, sir, we don't have any young girls in here. This is a this is a family place, you know. We we were in here two days ago. Don't tell us that, you know, because we were in there doing undercover work, or yeah. his people were in there. And then we found out that these cops were tipping off the the club owners who were Jeez. traffickers, and then they would go over later the next day and pick up a big bundle of money. Yeah, and they were happy. Well, you know, wow. the average policeman in Philippines at that time. Maybe made maybe made three thousand dollars a year. I'm I'm just guessing. Yeah. So they would make their wages and then some in doing stuff like that or in participating in the trafficking. Hmm. And uh, so that's what we were up against. And it took us it took us a while to weed those guys out of being. We couldn't we couldn't weed them out from 
the police department. That was in our job. Yeah. <clears throat> but we weeded them out from going to classes. Uh, we tried to vet the people before they came in oh, okay. and so that we had solid cops out there. Well, who was handling the raids? I mean, was there a raid team? Yeah, there was, was the police there was doing a, that? Or? There was a raid team. It was Tate and the the uh, criminal police, The yeah. uh, I think they call them the NBI, National Investigative Bureau or something like that. Oh, so they had a federal force that was involved? Yeah, in they were sort of like the Filipino FBI. Oh, I see. But they were, you know, for the whole nation. And they would provide guys, and, and the local police would also provide guys. And then uh, <clears throat> Lois would hook up with our aftercare team. When we made the raid, we'd take the girls out, they would, and we turn the girls over to them, and they would, you know, do their magic or whatever they had to do, you know, uh, uh, try to let them know that they're not going to jail and, and they've done nothing wrong, that type of thing. Yeah. And she'd, she'd help working with them sometimes. Um, so and then those guys, we it took us a while, but after a while, I think there was money hanging over the head of the Filipinos, okay, uh, the government from the United States, and I forget what, what the, it was from the State Department. So they said, well, fine, if you're not going to do anything about trafficking, we're just going to cut your funds off. Well, that, you know, okay, you're going to cut our funds off and huh. we'll start doing something. So they jumped in there and um, eventually... We ended up getting life sentences for these traffickers. Really? No oh, parole. Okay. Wow. Huh. And um, so, in closing down, closing down uh, uh, clubs. I don't know how many clubs that we were able to close down. Oh, that's great. Um, I get all these uh, patches and these things are all the units that I trained, all the individual oh, okay. units. Yeah. And so, you know, they had the Providence police, they had the, <clears throat> the, like, they worked the ports, so they didn't have the slightest idea what to look for when it came to trafficking. Right. You know, so we trained them all up, they went back there, they started making arrests, stopped, you know, young girls from being trafficked right there in the ports. Same with the, the, uh, the airport police, hmm. um, and then, of course, throughout the islands, different islands. And, and I taught, I taught uh, you know, criminal investigations to raids. Hmm. And, how to handle evidence and stuff like that, what to do with it. And I, I set up all my mock-ups directed strictly to um, serious crimes and trafficking always played a part in there somewhere. Yeah. So that, uh, because when I went over there first, they gave me a pack of paperwork and here's your classes. And I read them, it's like, this is a textbook. They said, yeah, this by Professor so-and-so, and he works at such and such a place, and he developed this course. I said, well, this is a fine course for a college. Yeah. I said, right. for me to teach, to stand up in there and read from like a textbook? Yeah. I said, this isn't going to work. So I developed the whole training class. Oh, is that right, really? I just developed everything um, for them, and I almost, I got in a lot of trouble, really, because my my lawyer, uh, and Andy uh, Sarchenko, he um, he said, "This is I'm going to have to present it to the head office," but he said, "Go with it." And I went a couple classes, and it, it you know it, it was working. And they said, "Well, you know, you're not following this, that, and the other thing from this professor, and he's the expert." And blah. Mm. I said, "You got to understand. You want me to teach these people? Yeah. And then I have to have something to teach them. Yeah. I can't read from a textbook or from paperwork. Yeah." So four years you did that? Four years. So you guys were operating all over the Philippines. 
Yes. Like Manila, um, everywhere? Yeah, we went up and helped the Manila office out. They had their own set of uh, um, investigators and so forth up there, but I was the main trainer, so I would go up there and train uh, the units that are in and around Manila Hmm. and uh, wherever they would send them from. Sometimes they would have police uh, personnel come in from different parts of the country. So what, what time period was this? This was uh, 2006 through 2010. Okay. Because um, I know there was a lot of turmoil going on around that time. I was reading. I mean, there was, uh, you know, guerrilla activity, um, you know, all kinds of coups going on and um, kidnappings. Was there any evidence that they were being trafficked outside of, out of the Philippines? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, there was, there was a lot, and there was a lot of uh, trafficking coming into the Philippines as well as the Filipino girls and so oh. forth, the kids. I mean, these girls were being—see, there's no accountability over there in the sense if a, if a child is born on the street, they don't have a birth certificate, hmm. so they're a nobody. Hmm. So if someone steals them, like a trafficking uh company or whatever, steals them, nobody misses them, hmm. except maybe their parents, but they can't report them because they don't have, a, they don't have a, you know, hmm. a birth certificate. So that's what my wife was working with and those type of children. Wow. Um, so there was actually children involved with this. There was children. I mean, yeah. I mean, some of the, some of the, Cambodia was the worst. Really? Hmm. Give me a minute. Yeah. We were in Cambodia. We were in Phnom Penh. And we were doing our usual stuff and, and the undercover work. And, you know, okay, we're, we're, Tate and I were a couple of businessmen. We wanted to have a party. Yeah. But we needed some party favors. And uh, so a guy who knew a guy who knew another guy said, I'll hook you up with them. And so we did. And then you go out and look at the product. Okay, fine. So they took us way out in the jungle, and we thought, this is it, man. They're going to they're gonna whack us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, <clears throat> they came out to this clearing, and it was a big, like, a warehouse, but it was sort of like an apartment building in a sense. And we went out there, <clears throat> and um, we're talking to the guys there, and, you know, they were, they were, they were street thugs, you know, mm-hmm. and they, they were the first people we had to get past before we could get inside. You know, yeah. they would feel us out and search us and make sure we didn't have guns and radios and all this other stuff. And so uh, we got through them and we went inside and this trafficker guy came out and asked us what we were looking for and said, well, you know, we're, we're hosting a conference over here. Of, I mean, we made up some story we had made up a long time ago Yeah. before we went out. And I said, we just need some party favors. I said, we got a lot of people that, important clientele that are coming over. Mm. Well, I can help you out. So he called all these kids down. Mm. Barry, most of these kids were coming down there. They were had old ragged teddy bears in their arms. Oh, they were old. Me. They were maybe four years old, no. five years old. Really? Um, Cambodia. And, and it was like, we're looking at these, Tate and I are looking at these kids. It's like, oh, my gosh. I said, they're just children. Mm. He looks at me like, well, that's what you want, right? He says, let me give you a um, an idea of what all of, the, each of them has their specialties. Mm. And he went through all this stuff about who who does what. And, 
And it's just like I'm looking at these little girls and little boys, and I'm thinking, what kind of life do they have? And they were just, they looked like they were dead, okay? They yeah. were dead inside. Yeah. And um, Tate said, if I had a gun, he said, I'd yeah. shoot that guy right on the spot. Yeah. And so we had to leave, and that was the hardest part. Because we had to leave there. We said, well, we'll go back and talk to our people and see what they want to do. And that was something that has stuck with me forever because it was like, I mean, there weren't just five or six kids. There was like tens, there's 30, 40 kids there, maybe more, and uh, all ages. Um, and we were leaving them. Mm. And we didn't have, we had no no way to get them out of there. Is that right? There was no jurisdiction? or There was no jurisdiction. I mean, we could go to Cambodia. We went to the Cambodian police, but, oh, well, we have to do this. We have to do that. You know, and their investigations are long and extensive. And, you know, they're just dragging their feet because, you know, somebody's greasing their palms, that type of thing. Yeah. Jeez. So did you guys end up leaving with any so-called party favors or? No, we didn't. So we just, just decided we, to leave. We just wanted to see what was going on there. And we went back and <clears throat> talked to our uh, our people. We had an office there in Phnom Penh, talked to them. And they basically said, you know, there's, I'm, I'm running this. It was an English guy who worked for the company. He said, um, you know, I've been running into this all the time. He said, I, I can't, I can't save everybody. He said, you know, I know how heartbreaking it is. It's just, you know, and it's different in the sense you don't really get hardened by it, but you do build a shell. Yeah. And you can learn to deal with it and that sort of thing. Sort of like a homicide investigator, Mm -hmm. you know, gets that little shell, but he's still bothered by what he sees. Yeah. And um, it was just, it was really, really tough. Jeez. So what made you guys come back? Basically, um, Lois's mom had gotten sick, and we weren't sure how long she was going to live. So she actually came back in April of 2010. My contract with the company was up at October, the end of October 2010. Mm-hmm. But they, I was going to extend it at the time. and But the company was changing their format. They weren't doing the hands-on street stuff. They were going to Internet. Mm-hmm. And so whole things were going to change and whatnot. And uh, I basically, I don't know if I was affected by a lot of that stuff. And I just said, I'm, I'm done. Yeah. I'm, I'm done. Yeah. And I went, I said, I'll finish out my contract and I'll, you know, get everybody else that's coming in behind me up and running. And you can have all my, my training materials and whatnot. You know, I don't have a copyright on any of this. It's just police stuff. Yeah. And I said, you guys can run with it. I said, I can. And I, I hear PR periodically uh, on a fairly regular basis from one of the guys we hired as an investigator. Oh, is that right? Really? And uh, he tells me how it's going over there. I hear, oh, he's I'll still hear, in the game, huh? huh? Yeah, he's still in the game. Wow. Now I just heard from him a couple of weeks ago, and he said that uh, <clears throat> he's uh, applying for the NBI. The oh, head, yeah. You know, investigators. I haven't heard from him since then, so um, he, he might have got— hired and he's off for training i don't know but yeah so. interesting so you guys come back to the states and at what point do you move to rightsville pretty much right away uh-huh. uh, we lived 
in Cool Creek Apartments before we left. Oh, okay. Uh, well, we went from our house over here to Cool Creek. We sold the house, and then uh, you know she um, she said, "Why don't we just go back in that area?" Well, I like Wrightsville, so we came back here. We were looking for a house. We looked all over, and this one became available. It looked like anything yeah, needs a lot of work in it, but. We ended up buying from the guy. She knew the guy who owned it. Oh, okay. And so he he got us a deal, and and we bought it, and hmm. here we are. So, at what point were you like, I'm gonna I'm gonna run for mayor. I want to get into <laughs> politics. I was cajoled into that. That was that right, yeah, really? Yeah, I didn't. That's not something I went knocking on the door and saying, oh, Hey, really? uh, I'm yeah. here, and I, I'm bored, and I want to be a mayor. Yeah. <laughs> no. What happened was, in 2017, uh, my garage got hit by a tornado. Oh. Okay, there was a tornado going through the area. It happened to be hopping. Well, it hopped right in front of my garage and really? took it with it, just everything all over the backyard. <clears throat> and uh, so everybody came out and, and so forth, and and uh, all the guys from Hellum uh, and so forth, they were trying to figure out what was going on. And, and so we got that all taken care of. And then um, I think it was Eric uh, called me up, and he says, "Hey, we're we want to know if you want to be on council." Hmm. I'm going, "Nah, I don't care about politics." And um, so we uh, went back and forth, and he just kept calling and kept calling. And uh, I found out somebody had known him and had said something to him about me, and that's why he was calling me. Okay. He says, "Look," he said, "We got a lot more going on." up here than just politics. He said, your background will solve our problem. Mm. I said, what are you talking about? He <laughs> said, well, <laughs> not fully at liberty to tell you, but, you know, yeah. we need you. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm just not interested. So I was helping a friend out in the gun shop and one day, and Eric and Mike, uh, what's his name, came in, and uh, grumbling. And uh, I said, oh. I said, when are you guys going to give up or what? And uh, he says, uh, he said, no. He said, we want to know what you want to do. He said, There's, the mayor's position is now open. There's a council position open. You can have either one of them. And they're talking to me. And I said, all right, all right, all right, all right. I'll, I'll think about it. Eventually, you know, we talked. And Lois and I talked. And I, I said, yeah, okay, I'll, 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 take the, I'll take the mayor's position. I said, I, you know. Not sure if I want to be on council or anything. I said, you know, and I, I was thinking actually the mayor, things were flip flop. It was the mayor that was the lead guy, and the council was just, you know, right. they were there. Yeah, but it's yeah. not in Wrightsville. No, <laughs> it's opposite. Yeah. So because of what they told me, they wanted me to do. Oh. And I said, they said no, but you'll have full control of the police department, and you know, you can do what needs to be done. So um, that's how I got into it. So. So you can see the it's all nice and sunny and warm when we <laughs> yeah. first got there. This yeah. is a black leaning tower piece that we wrote. And uh, this was our thing here is Phil back in his little cubby hole that he dug out for us. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this guy right here is the one that he saved from freezing to death. Oh jeez. Was this that place in Europe you were talking yeah. about? Oh right. This is in Portugal. So. Is that, is that you there? Yeah, that's really? me. <laughs> this is when I was working in our 
narcotic. Oh, is that what that is? <laughs> I, mentioned to you, I mentioned to you that we did a training thing over in third. This is 30 years. And I actually need a four. I need another one that should be at 40. Okay. This is Korea, a patch we wore in Korea. This is obviously Berlin. This was the 716th MP Battalion in Vietnam. And of course, that's self-explanatory. Our wings, this is the Portuguese wings here. This is French Command. I went through French Commando School. Mm -hmm. Didn't mention that, but anyway, that was in 72. 